Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree, and this is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I talk to Chahan Kamzazade, um, who has written a book called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, the Transformation of Consciousness and Evolution on the Planet, an Integral Approach. Um, so he's written this amazing book on uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and he also works at um, the Atman Retreat Center in Jamaica that uh, specializes in delivering um, psilocybin ceremonial journeys for people. And he's a facilitator there. And he's also trained with the Maztec people um, in uh, Mexico, in the sort of one of well, the oldest uh, culture still running uh, that, you know, works with psilocybin mushrooms um, and also done deep psychological training, somatic therapy and those kind of things. So he, he really knows his stuff in this, in this um, world and uh, magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms are something I think are amazing. Um, and uh, I've been into them for about 25 years. They grow widely all over the United Kingdom. Um, as they do across, as I learned from Jahan, all over the entire globe, uh, apart from um, Antarctica. So I uh, really enjoyed connecting with Jahan on the subject, and uh, I hope you enjoy. Jahan comes as are they? Good. Welcome to... Um, the evolving spiritual practice podcast and honor to be here yeah. right we're here to to talk about one of my favorite subjects magic mushrooms psilocybin mm. mushrooms um and mm. uh yeah i'm really really excited about this and, and i came across you because you'd recently written um a book on the subject um which uh, yeah. very detailed and you've had um some very elaborate training um, in the field. Mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've been taking psilocybin mushrooms for about 25 years and mm -hmm. they, they grow all over the countryside in the United Kingdom. And um, mm -hmm. up until, you know, 2005, fresh mushrooms were legal. You could even buy them in shops. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it, it is something that it, that is illegal now. Um, but a lot of, uh, police departments in the country have said, well, look, we're just, we're not worried about that sort of thing. We're just going to get on with proper policing, you know? So, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. so it's kind of one of these liminal subjects that's kind of in the gray areas. Um, and it's got a lot of. Mm -hmm press it's been in the newspapers a lot in in, in my country and, and in the united states basis with people using it for therapy which is what your expertise are in that's the kind of broad context for, for this conversation and you've written this amazing book what i would you know love to open up the conversation with is perhaps you'd like to start with the training I know several years ago uh, i decided that my dissertation was going to be on psilocybin mushrooms and I came from a background of integral theory for many years. 
Um, but I knew in my life, they were the transformative experiences I had beyond meditation, relationships, community, therapy. Um, they were the greatest resource of resources of, of my life inside and spiritual experiences. And I've been thought about journeys that when I, I'm 38 now that I had starting at 15, you know, and they were a part of my daily living life. And I thought it was the best way I could uh, be of service to this world, you know, to help facilitate and mediate these experiences. And there's a multi, you know, approach to this. There is the strong academic part. So, you know, I went through a doctor's program in consciousness to be able to focus on this and also wanted the real world practical hands-on training. I went through a multi, you're training with a Mazatec tradition going down, you know, in Mexico and training within a lineage. Um, the Mazatec's uh, historical use of mushrooms goes back thousands of years to the Mayans. You know, they have the, the Curandia Mar Maria Sabina comes from that lineage. And then also wanted the Western psychotherapeutic approach. Um, so I assisted for two years at the psychedelic certificate training at CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies, it was one of the first above ground strong trainings. And then I uh, mentored for a year at the School of Consciousness Medicine. Um, I've been holding legal psilocybin ceremonies with Atman retreats in Jamaica. Um, so there was very much, you know, a hands-on approach of seeing people's lives transform radically. Um, half a time overnight is beautiful. You know, I've seen that happen with myself and many other people. At the same time, when it comes to scholarly work, I read Terence McKenna's book, Food of the Gods at 19. I was already obsessed with evolution, but the idea that we evolved because the relationship with psilocybin mushrooms that had been so strong in my life um, quite struck me. And as I continued in academia for about two decades, I hadn't come across a better theory of our development. You know, this was based on ecology, on diet, on chemistry, on neuroscience, on archaeology. It's just a very grounded um, explanation for our emergence. And so because my focus had been the evolution of consciousness, you know, it caught my interest and I stayed with it until you know, my 30s. And I was like, this needs to be told and spread and, and updated. You know, so I, I dove in really hard, read 75 books just on psychedelics for that work and you know, hundreds of others to really create the context of that. And the book's coming out April 5th. Um, it's called The Psilocybin Connection, Psychedelics, The Transformation of Consciousness and the Evolution of the Planets, An Integral Approach. It's on Amazon right now, Barnes and Nobles, Google Play, and it's uh, published by North Atlantic Books. Um, it'll be uh, put out also, dispersed by Penguin Random House. And so... It's the accumulation, feels like of 20 years of work, but five years of just solid focus. And uh, for me, it gives context to psychedelics. I feel they change our lives, but I think the missing context is that they're within an evolutionary framework, you know, both of a personal development, like integral theory that consciousness develops an individual, but within that lens of, of, of say, spiral dynamics, because I know the audience might be familiar with this, of turquoise, that we're a part of a larger living system and the ecology and environment also evolves. And so when we start to look at something like mushrooms, you know, I was since 15 stuck in this idea of like, how does this exist? How does this huge higher ordered experience that gets you in touch with yourself and the cosmos, this is not random. And when we look at uh, the neuroscience, for example, it creates a hyper-connected brain state and stimulates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. This isn't some kind of just messing up biotoxicity in your, your chemistry. So when we look at mycelium, it's this large underground living network that pretty much evolved before plants and created the soil for plant life to evolve on earth. So our ancestors have always been on top of this living system. 
and that this beautiful framework that interconnects all the plants and the environment arises well, first the cap and stem formation of mushrooms, but then with it psilocybin that perfectly fits into our serotonin receptors better than serotonin itself with no biotoxicity and stimulates the growth of, you know, of our brains. So I think this kind of living system, larger evolutionary framework, I think gives a better context for not only psilocybin, but psychedelics in general, since most of them, like a lot of the tryptamines are well-known, there's just a few different atoms difference, you know, all of them fit into the same receptor site. So I thought this conversation in context was missing and it fits, helps us with our missing story of how did we get here as humans? You know, I was very concerned about our origins. You know, it's a big deal. We don't even know how we arrived here. And so it's almost as if our species has this amnesia. Like, how do we know where we're supposed to be or going if we don't know how we arrived? And so this kind of helped complete the picture. You know, what I thought was almost the, the one of the greatest mysteries, you know, the emergence of humanity. And I, I definitely want to circle back to the stoned ape theory yeah. which you're referring yeah. to. Um, because mm -hmm. it's really, really interesting. Um, and I think when someone has taken psychedelics, it makes a lot of sense. Perhaps to people that haven't, it seems batshit crazy. <laughs> but um, I think mm -hmm. from the inside, um, mm -hmm. you know, it does make a lot of sense. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that, that I feel is so important to talk about this topic um is that there's a real lack of decent initiation for young people um you know when you look in our modern secular culture um and you know we look we look at different tribal cultures societies from around the world and they they have these um you know carefully guarded and very ancient rites of passage for uh, girls turning into women and men's uh, boys turning into men and be, be, because we we haven't kind of explicitly got these in our culture um what tends to happen is young people they get to their sort of teenage years and they start to experiment with a lot of people experiment with different uh, drugs psychedelics um you know, different some hard drugs, alcohol, these kind of things, because they want to get out of the where they've been, and you know, as children, they want to be able to take a perspective on their life up to that point. That's the sort of ecstatic nature of it, and um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think that you know, since the 1960s these substances have kind of formed this unofficial um rite of passage mm -hmm. for a, a a very large portion of our um the people uh, in, in our in our culture mm -hmm. um and it's all mm -hmm. a bit haphazard and I, and i'm i'm really hopeful that we're moving towards a, a point where we can actually so say you know, there'll be retreat centers like the Atman retreat center you work at in Jamaica, but mm -hmm. in, in England, mm -hmm. all across America, across Europe, New Zealand, Australia, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of these other places. Mm -hmm. um, and because the first time you take a psychedelic, it, it, it is, it is life-changing for most people. And um, mm -hmm. I, I once was at a, an ayahuasca ceremony and uh, everybody was sharing uh, at the beginning 
and this lady who looked to be about in her 70s said she'd never she'd never taken any substances at all her whole life and then in her 70s she tried ayahuasca for the first time and she said it was mm -hmm. such a surprise and i thought what we you know what an amazing thing like uh you know to wait that long to have that experience and and what an impact that would have had yeah. for her to have lived so many decades never known that this was a thing yeah and then to have that experience yeah. um yeah so maybe i i don't know with, with your mazatec training um mm -hmm. you know it, that's in uh sort of mexico is it or um yes yeah yeah well Oaxaca, the, mexico yeah. yeah so was did you see um the, a, a rite of passage tradition uh alive and mm -hmm. kicking it with the Aztecs? yes it's a, it's a huge part of their culture um beautiful amazing humble peaceful people uh as soon as you enter the main town within the Mazatec uh you know society it's Huatla de Jemenes. um there's a 12-foot statue of, you go down the main road, 12-foot statue of a mushroom on top of that's Maria Sabina with her hands open it says welcome to the 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 magical city it says that in Spanish and once you go to the the downtown the city center there's 12 mushroom murals um, right next to the church, the cop cars have little mushrooms on them. Um, Maria Sabina, the curandera that made the West aware of mushrooms has almost been elevated to the status of a saint there. And so for a lot of these societies, the entheogenic, you know, slash psychedelic societies uh, living today and those in the past, uh, they were passed on from generation to generation. And so the space holders, the curanderas, you know, we would call the medicine people, women or shaman, they were initiated into it as their parents did it and their parents did it. And so the people I went to study with, this has been part of their family line for generations. And over there, it's generally held space in ceremony for families. They're largely a matriarchal tradition. So a lot of the women hold the ceremonies and they'll hold it for you and your partners and your kids and everybody together. You know, So you'd have different, many generations in the same room. You know, as uh, the same way, you know, say psilocybin hyperconnects the brain, it also, I think, does that systemically with relationships. So much about it is healing the relationship within ourselves and other people, um, healing the fractures. And so it's very beautiful to do within that context. Uh, they start young, you know, five years old, and their biotoxicity helps awareness, brain growth. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if women take a pregnancy in their breast milk. Um, and I think it keeps them in harmony, you know, with themselves, each other, and the environment. So that rite of passage starts very young for them. And it's just a part of their lives. And they see it, they, you know, the Europeans came in, so they kind of have it in a Christian context also. They pray to the Lady Guadalupe, but they also look at it in the context of healing. So they ask spirits to ailments, you know, they don't have as much of a trauma background as we do. So they come and ask for the body to be healed or guidance to be served, you know, when they take the mushrooms over there. So to answer your, it, it, it's been a part of rites of passage throughout your life at that for everybody yeah. within that society. That, that, that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And I, I love the idea of families taking it together. I mean, what that could do yeah. for families, know. you know, in, um, in huge, our culture huge. wow yeah because you know it's my, huge i've held uh seven journeys 
No, you I've held it. seven journeys for my dad. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's starting in the sixties. My my dad's in the sixties, and I've held several journeys for him. Amazing life transformation. Absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. You know, there's a whole new dimension to his existence he never thought would be possible in the way he's changed and become a better father, you know, and a deeper relationship with my mom. You know, it's been incredible. One of the best gifts I've had in this life is, is participating in that experience with my father. Wow. Yeah. And you, yeah. you've, um, you've at, at the Atman Retreat Center in, in um, mm-hmm. Jamaica, it, how, like, yeah. you, is it, has it been hundreds of people you've, I mean, how many, how many roughly ceremonies of, of in people have you, you know, initiated into this? Experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just, I'll just say a lot. A lot. <laughs> um, and the way it's set up, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's 12 people at a time that come and I go and participate in a few ceremonies. So 12 people come, they leave. Another 12 people come, they leave. And it's a, for each ceremony structure, it's four days. You know, they come in, rest, we have a preparation. Uh, almost the entire second day is to ceremony, third day integration, and then another kind of integration before they take off. And then prep calls before they leave and then integration calls, you know, once they're back in the US. So, and a lot of them have kept in touch over the years. And so it's, it's beautiful to see the development, you know, happen over the course of a time, you know, to see just people's abrupt changes, uh, letting go of addiction, getting closer to the partners. Uh, a lot of us, I think, in the world are working on self-esteem. That's just a part of like Maslow's hierarchy, you know, the top levels where people don't feel like they're enough. And that part deeply heals, that deep child with the connection with the inner child, the feeling like I'm enough so I can actually actualize and become who I am and start to follow my purpose. You know, as, as the studies have shown now, going on decades, about 67% of people have a mystical experience and it's hard to say there's any more rewarding experience in this life you know it really can change you overnight so there's there's sort of two two different ways that people go into the the experience with mushrooms what one is to have and they set an intention there's a particular subject they want to explore and then the other way Mm -hmm. is just sort of uh, giving yourself over to the mushrooms and letting them do with you mm. what they what they will mm-hmm. and um yeah. i think in my own practice over the the years i kind of s- started off a bit in that kind of um what you might call recreational use at festivals and um psychedelic trance you know parties um and those kind of things it's a bit free form then a I kind of went into a bit of the trying to tackle uh, particular subtopics in the journeys. And then that's kind of changed um, into, into just a sort of set, letting the, the experience be self-organizing. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, I don't ever nowadays go in with a particular thing. I just let the mushrooms do what they, they do. And there's this kind of, um, I think I've built up a lot of trust. And I think in the beginning, you don't necessarily have that trust. Um, and it's something that's earned and, and, you know, the mushrooms have earned my trust uh, o- over the years. Mm. And maybe okay. I've earned their trust. <laughs> so it's this mutual oh. thing. But, you know, with, with, your, with these ceremonies you do in Jamaica, um, you know, do you, is there room for both of those approaches or, or do you do you prefer people to start 
with with an intention or, or what what do you do yeah no i'll probably share first you know about myself a bit before i jump into that you know i, I heard a little bit of your podcast earlier you know myself also i've done hundreds of journeys you know three four more hundred journeys and at that point i, I have a similar approach to you where i just surrender myself over um i was an atheist until i took mushrooms so now it's very much a deep connection with God. Um, that's the term and word I kind of approach this living consciousness. And it's kind of just an openness and handing myself over uh, to what wants to arise. You know, you, as you mentioned, self-organizing or Stan Kroc, the psychedelic psychotherapist have been around for decades, started transversal psychology, would say holotropic states of consciousness, states that move towards wholeness. And so I, I, I've come to that approach. That being said, most of the people that come, I'd say 90% of them are in pain. You know, there's, there's enough motivation in their system to want to come to the other country to try something new. So most, by far, people come in because they've been suffering, and they've been suffering for a very long time, you know, a lot of them decades, and they've gone through all the traditional methods of, of healing, you know, all the medicines, all the therapies, you know, what we've seen with the research, you know, it's 80% it's effective for treatment-resistant depression, meaning people that they've tried everything and nothing has worked, 80% of those people get to heal. It's, it's incredible. Higher rate than I believe anything else. So 90% come with this impulse for very specific reasons to, to resolve this inner torments and, and fraction that they have inside, largely depression and anxiety. And those together go very well. About 10% come out of curiosity. You know, so it's a very different uh, approach. And so because they're coming in with some level of pain, they have an idea of what to come in. It's our job also, you know, as guides to help them clarify that for us to understand so we can help guide them in the process, bring back their attention, come with our understanding, you know, of, of Western psychology and psychotherapy to see what healing needs to happen. So more or less, we are a little bit more focused and acute on the journey to help them get what they're wanting. The majority, 50, 60, 70% of these people have never journeyed before. I know they wanna come somewhere where it's safe, where it's legal, where it's very professional to have this experience in healing. And that being said, there comes a point where I think an openness approach is also beneficial, but it's not coming from a place of deficit. You're kind of surrendering yourself over. As long as you're coming and you're needing something because you're in pain, I think it's very, uh, wives uh, most people i see that they come with uh, an intention they get it you know you can come with two three four five intentions and a lot of the times like a checklist like it happens during the journey and they receive what they're wanting yeah uh, yeah then that's um that sounds i mean what a gift to have that center um i i did a yeah. um an interview a while back with um a guy who runs an iboga um retreat center in costa rica mm -hmm. and i, I think it's mm -hmm. it's so great that there are these places in the world where this is all legit if you've got the money to go there you know it, it's yeah. there um yeah. with people who really know what they're doing um they've created the the, the sort of perfect container to have this experience um and uh, mm. yeah if, if people have got the funds to do it you know what what a great introduction to it because you know, it's kind of a bit the wild, a bit of the wild west here uh, in the west. <laughs> you know, with this sort of mm -hmm. underground mm -hmm. scene, and I think you know, 
my initiation into this stuff was just with friends in uh you know the early 1990s they were we did we didn't have any books we didn't have any internet we didn't have any elders we had no instruction you know um yeah i mean one time i i mean i even ground up a load of nutmegs and and had that and you know later found out that you can actually kill yourself with nutmeg um i had a horrible experience but you know it, it, it doesn't have to be this way you know, it really, really doesn't. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. so it's, what a great thing um, that, that you're doing these things. So you've got the other, so you've got the ceremony with with 12 people there. Um, and then mm-hmm. the other sort of um, setup that seems to be quite popular now is the one-on-one session with a therapist, you know, that they're doing yes. in, in yes. MAPS and Imperial College in London and mm-hmm those kind of places have um yeah. you know so you do, you must talk about that in your book and um yeah yeah it's my preferred method that i would share with people absolutely you can go a lot deeper <clears throat> i hold you know monthly integration sessions with sf psychedelic society and, and so it comes up every time and i think it's the safest approach for any human but even for people that are seasoned you know, to go to with the skill guide, it's highly encouraged because you can drop in a lot deeper and let go. You know, the point being that not only this person has some level of technical skill and understanding of the experience, but hopefully you feel safer with them in the room. If you don't feel safer with them there, they're probably not the right person. And so that your system can relax and really, really let go. You know, and so as you probably know, you can get in some terrifying states in these you know journeys where you think you're dying or you're dissolving or i'm sick or get stuck in shame or fear or just anger like to have somebody there to help heal create connection whether it's just holding your hands your feet looking your eyes letting you know okay you know it's the difference between being stuck in a trauma response for like five hours or that passing within five minutes if somebody is there to help you move through it. So highly, highly encouraged, first and foremost, with a skill guide. <clears throat> I think the hardest part of what's happening right now in the field is uh, the demand is so much more than there are skilled people. And skilled people tend to cost a lot. Um, and because the demand's so high and it requires lots and lots and lots of training. And so there's a project I'm working on um, called Silo Health. Uh, we're, we're creating a, a free four-hour training. We've already recorded it. It'll be released like in the next month or so, where it gives enough training for people to sit with each other. So you can have, you know, a, a best friend, a, a cousin, somebody there that has enough context and grounding information to create safety so people can start sitting for each other. So that one-on-one approach is definitely the one I'd encourage first and foremost. The group experience is beautiful. It's a different kind of medicine. There's a lot of um, healing when it comes to belonging. You know, a lot of fracture can come from not feeling a part of our family system or society. What we've seen in this Jamaica setting, you know, became a very apparent our first time that first and foremost, the medicine is the big part. But the second huge medicine was the group bonding. Everybody that comes, they get so close to each other. They overgrow this huge experience Almost every time they all keep in touch, create WhatsApp groups, email lists, and for years later, these groups are still connected. You know, it's and 
so much of what our psyche wants, you know, as the medicine shows us, is this underlying feeling of deep interconnection. And we can have that spiritually and internally with the planet, but there's nothing like having it with other people, you know? So within this kind of group field where there's this sense of boundary dissolving and one is going through this depth, through this cauldron, it's very transformative. And if you can keep a culture, a close group of friends to reflect that with, it's almost as if the transformation continues. So yes, at first and foremost, the group session, I mean, the one-on-one, then group session. And then if you want to go it alone, <clears throat> but uh, I've had some hard experiences with that, even after decades. Um, and I think that's happened to a lot of people. So I would refrain from that, especially with higher doses, um, because you can get in some tricky spots. Yeah. For, for a couple of decades, I've mainly been doing the psilocybin on my own. Um, and I think I've got that kind of personality. Um, you know, I, I was, I wanted to be a hermit, um, at certain, certain point oh. in my life, you know, so it's, uh, and I have really, like you say, got into some very, very bad places <laughs> on my own. Yeah. Uh, I must, I must admit. I hear you. Um, yeah. but I've always somehow managed to get out of it. The other, the other end of it. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's yeah. where the, the faith in, I think there's, you know, faith in homeostasis to, that there's this mm -hmm. force mm -hmm. that wants you to come back at the end, you know, make, make mm -hmm. you whole again. Um, mm -hmm. But I think I, I got into this sort of solo um, journeying um, because I, you know, really like to go very, very deep inside myself mm. um and uh so i yeah i mean i've i've done the group setting and i've done a lot of it on my own but i haven't had this one-on-one -on -one experience um so yeah. you know that might be something i i might might um you try that out sometime and and see how that goes magic hurts it can yeah. be very beautiful yeah yeah and um so one of the things I liked you, I was listening to a podcast you did. Um, you said that when people listen, say music and psilocybin are a match made in heaven. They oh. really are. And one of the things you said is that it's, it's best in your experience to use music that doesn't have any words in it. And uh, mm -hmm. that's been my experience too. I mean, I really like to not have the words there because so much of what you're experiencing is nonverbal um and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know to kind of like activate that part of your mind can kind of pull you out a bit obviously words sound very profound i mean i've you know I've, i have listened to people recite poetry and you know i've been absolutely in awe of it but you know my preferences for music without words i mean is there something more you you might say about that you know perhaps there's there's might yeah, be totally. some some neuroscience behind the the logic of that yeah <clears throat> well definitely i think you you know definitely alluded to it where i don't want people to get stuck on specific content especially something outside of them we want them the wisdom to come from inside it's almost as the best Kind of way i can relate a psilocybin state to people that have never done it it's almost like you're deepening into a dream world you know when you're deeply relaxed and you fall asleep this visionary world arises every night 
similar with psilocybin, the deeper you can relax that go and, and trust and surrender, more images arise, more sensations, more, and it's a, it's a voyage and it feels very intelligent as you're being led somewhere. So I want that internal guiding price, prices to be presidents and not just somebody's vocals and the lyrics and the music to take them out of it and take the focus away. And so when we take psilocybin, it's almost as if part of our faculties quiet down and others become very more sensitive. It's often hard for people to talk. And it, as you shared, as people start to focus on words, they lose this deeper interconnection often. I think that's, and so it's nice that's, to have, um, that's one of the reasons why I, I like uh, to do this on my own, because I, I don't want to talk to people. And sometimes, you know, quite often, sometimes people want to talk to you or they're like, oh, wow, look at this or look at that, uh, you know, or listen to this. And it's, um, yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. Some of the best sessions for sure are the people, it, it, most of the time they're silent for hours and they're deep inside. That being said, part of my role though as a guide is to help them integrate their experience from this deep say unconscious or subconscious to their conscious mind. And that does involve some level of putting things to words. And so about if, if things are going well and, and they're deep inside every half hour, I check in and ask them to take a snapshot or put some words so I can write them down. And so I can help them remember later. The internal experience can be so vast, profound, and so different than our every consciousness that people can forget like 70% of it. And so asking them to put a few words at some moments help them recall almost that entire gestalt. And the a good metaphor I like, it's almost as if you're going out with somebody in a boat in the ocean and you're they're going doing deep dives for gold down at the ocean. And it's just go, 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 go deeper, deeper, get the gold, get the nugget, come back, give it to me in another deep dive. So every 30 seconds is like 30 minutes, just go in, do a dive, then come back, give me whatever wisdom you got so I can take a notes about it and do another dive. And so this way, it just kind of helps integrate more of it consciously. That being said, whoever the guide is, you're there more as a midwife. You know, it's, it's not about them and how intelligent or focused or good they are at this. Nature is doing the work. Like it's so much more profound than anything a human being can be doing. You know, thinking of a Terrence McKenna, this little uh, sign behind me, I'll show it later, but he has this thing, uh, avoid guru follow plans. You know, forget, it's not about the, the people are amazing, but nature has a wisdom that shows so much more. So it's kind of relaxing back and let nature guide this process. And so you're kind of creating safety you know, within the person for them to have this self-organizing, self-transcendent healing experience. Yeah. Well, that, that is a really good quote from McKenna there. And that yeah. kind of brings me to something I wanted to, to bring up is, um, you know, really you're there to meet the mushroom and the experience, the nature. Um, and you know, the role of the shaman or the, you know, the, the guru and the, these, these are roles that are changing now. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, what would you say about how, so some people would, you know they want to go into this experience they want to know that they're they're going to be working with people who are going to help them have the most beneficial deep profound experience like what would be your mm. kind of checklist for looking for the right type of person or group of people to take you through this experience because 
the absolute worst experience like would be so uh, under the influence you're very very impressionable like those little baby, baby chicks that imprint you know on the first face they see and if you're there mm. and you've got some very very charismatic dominating person who's who's pushing their own world view onto you lots of concepts things about the way they see reality and they're they're kind of you know what i mean they're, they're almost trying to press that into yeah. you that's that's the worst possible mm -hmm. scenario and mm. so many people have had that bad experience so mm -hmm. you know what wisdom can you give to people who might be listening to this who want to do this kind of exploration in terms of finding the right type of people yeah. uh, to guide you through this. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, uh, I could see some people put, giving some pushback, what I'm about to say, but it, it's nice to see the person's credentials, meaning have they gone through some formal training, um, specifically in learning how to hold space? Are they a therapist? You know, like, or I went through two years of somatic psychotherapy training with Hakomi, um, where they have really focused and honed in skills in space holding um and have a therapeutic awareness um the reason i might get some pushback is i've seen other people were like well that requires some level of privilege or finances or so on and it's just yes it's i mean you don't want to go to a medical doctor with somebody that didn't have any kind of training right and it's the same when it comes to your psyche and your heart and your soul you want them to have some level of, of training um because it does change a person dramatically you know to have that skill set and, and that level of awareness that being said, we're entering, as I mentioned, a space where the bottleneck of a psychedelic movement largely is going to be there's not enough trained people. So there's going to be people propping themselves as shamans or space holders or medicine guides uh, as therapists without training everywhere. Um, that they've just done whatever amount of journeys and they're going to hold space. And so, you know, another thing to look at is how much self-work they've done. Super, super, super important. That being said, they also need a skill set to learn how to hold space. And that's another, that's a skill set that you practice and focus on. You know, so you can do all the internal development, which is important, but you need to learn how to almost just be present, you know, and just reflect, you know, and, and part of those trainings will help you hone in that this isn't about you, you know, you let the guy in a lot of say Hakomi, which I like you, the clients always guide you. You're just helps facilitating the process. And especially true in the psychedelic states. You know, their deep wisdom's coming up. It's for them to learn, not for you to impress your worldview or you to look good in front of anybody else's eye. Yeah, that's that's really, really sound advice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um just looking at my notes here. So right what happens when someone freaks out um you know you're in, you're in jamaica you've got 12 people there somebody's freaking yeah. out um yeah. what what do you do and what do you mm -hmm. try and help the person do themselves you know what's it like for you as a facilitator and what's it like for the person having the experience yeah you know that, yeah. that kind of relationship you've got and how do you how do you kind of help them digest what they're experiencing yeah yeah and i'm fortunate enough that i feel good enough and attuned to everybody i've been working with that can help them regulate way before anything like that would ever happen 
Um, because there's a lot of signs before that happens, whether it's agitation, fear, trauma, there's a lot of building up of energy and there's ways to really soothe a person or help them reconnect before it gets anywhere near approaching that level where you'd have to restrain somebody or, or some of the sort. That being said, almost all the freak out, I'd say the vast majority, somebody's in fear. So the focus is then help them feel safe um, before the system really revs up. Uh, some approaches people could do, holding somebody's feet helps them feel a lot more grounded. You know, if they're feeling fear, they're probably having a lot of their energy or they're being focused in, in their head, you know, because they're like, they're creating thoughts and, and there's a lot of focus on whatever thing is going on in their imagination because physically they're fine. There's no, nothing to be scared about. So having their feet held uh, really helps bring the attention down and helps ground them. Uh, I like gravity blankets. Um, so I have like a 40 pound blanket to put on top of somebody helps them get in touch with their body and their pressure. And it helps relieve a lot of anxiety. Hand holding goes very far. You know, I would say it's not so bad to say that almost our greatest source of fear is a sense of disconnection, you know, grounded this idea that we are at the, our core, our unity, a sense of oneness and deep interconnection. And it's a sense of being disconnected and alienated that creates anxiety. And have to survive, care for myself, or even dying is almost this deep fear of like loss of connection with everything and everybody I know. And so helping them feeling really connected, hand holding, looking in the eyes, hand on the chest, like I am here with you. And you can empathize and help them feel connected. Almost all the fear goes away. You know, through the Hakomi training, the teacher John Eisman, he's been doing this for 30 years, teaching Hakomi brilliant teacher. He says the difference between trauma and a bad experience is in trauma, you felt alone. As opposed to I was, I was in connection and I just went through something really difficult. And so trauma can be said that there's a part of you that feels stuck and isolated and fragmented. And the goal is creating wholeness. And whether that's a car crash and you felt alone or a rape, even though there's somebody assaulted, you felt deeply alone. So you want to bring that part of them into connection with themselves and within relationship. And so figuring out a way to create that connection is going to create safety. It's going to soothe the system. You're going to help build trust. So they're going to listen to you. You know, there's no reason to move around the room or freak out and attune with them, you know, and if that's done, people just tend to listen. Um, what happens a lot in the psychedelic states and has to do a lot, same with therapy, is people get into, I would say the child state, the inner child, that's where like a lot of the trauma is. And so people regress tremendously, you know, it's often where people feel like they're infants or three-year-olds or seven-year-olds. And so you want to build trust with that inner child and help them feel safe and if that connection is made, people tend to listen, you know, their adult self brought them here and they want help. And so if the trust is established between you, the, the guide and the participant, people tend to listen. Yeah. Music is great. You know, there's so many small tools to just try to soothe the system to help them regulate, to bring them back down and feel grounded again. Yeah, that is yeah. great advice. And I know what you said about the music, because sometimes, you know, the, the, you want a bit of music with a bit of darkness in it to take you into that place, you know, but then you, you, you don't want to play, you want a playlist that follows a lot of contours. Um, and, uh, you know, but it, it's, if you've gone through a really heavy patch, you've got some music that's really taking you in somewhere deep. If that moves into a very light, beautiful piece of music, it's like, oh, thank God. <laughs> But, you know, and then you kind of get ready for another deep dive. And this is kind of, um, 
you know, up and down waves in and out pulsating kind of thing. And once you recognize that's just the way it goes, you know, you just like, you feel, okay, here we go. Mm -hmm. We're going in for another deep one and then you can feel it coming out. But that, that's great advice. I love, I love what you say there. Mm. One, something that, that happened for me in my early twenties was, um, Mm through taking just a wide variety of a lot of psychedelics um way too often was and i was studying shamanism um in an academic context the university i kind of reawoke this sort of pre-modern animist psyche within myself which yeah. Yeah. you know we tend to in post in the sort of postmodern circles i imagine you and i move in um we saw, mm-hmm. there's a tendency to romanticize like the life of tribes mm-hmm. and that worldview because there's so mm-hmm. much beauty in it there's so much aliveness mm-hmm. connection everything's alive mm-hmm. there's spirits everywhere but it's not all yeah. about nice spirits that you know there are demons mm-hmm. and um you know malevolent forces and i don't i don't at all live mm. in that world anymore uh it's been a long time um mm. you know since i've had that kind of stuff come up but at that particular time in my life mm. it nearly derailed me and 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 actually almost drove me insane so uh you know, have you you know if is there anything you say about that or experience you've had with that or with other with yourself with other people and mm-hmm yeah yeah lots within myself seen it with others uh i love the topic by the way you know to bring just some more just a little bit of cognitive context to these models you know if we look at uh some of your audience probably knows uh integral and wilbur's work you know we'll go through models of paradigm development we have you know, the the kind of shamanic animist worldview that was a huge part of early humanity that actually went on for hundreds of thousands of years within our species you know as we then evolved into more civilized and industrial societies, a pre-modern, modern, now post-modern. Um, and the point of integral is to integrate the perspectives. And, and, and we're also seeing with like Gebser's model of, of integral, you know, there, there's this animist view and, and the integral stages arise when the worldviews are integrated. And this animist perspective that was such a big part of mostly the worldview as, as our human species has not integrated back into our modern psyche. Right, it's been absolutely left out, and so unless you live in a traditional uh, indigenous system, it's foreign to us, and so we haven't integrated what created a large part of our consciousness. And it's, I think, it's absolutely crucial for our species and our depth of wholeness for this animist perspective, not to just like we abandon our worldview now and move into animism, but animism's included. Animism being that the world is alive. Um, at a very deep level and it communicates. And so um, I'm grateful uh, for my experiences. Uh, at 18, I had an experience that rocked my you know, paradigm worldview in, within two hours. It was very drastic. Of, I was an atheist, a materialistic, focused on science for many years um, and depressed. That's a very depressing worldview. Um, very reductionistic to oh my god god exists and spirit is real and everything's alive and consciousness pervades everything like all dropped at once 
And since that moment, the life has been just this constant flood of synchronicity, uh, especially the next three years, you know, it became very apparent that the environment is always talking to you, that there's one being and it talks through everything that is happening, including other people's words and movements and animals and so on. And it enriched life tremendously, you know, because that's a deep level of connection and in contact and guidance and I, I can't even share how more magical and, and interactive and participatory life has become because of it. And it's one of those things, unless your eyes open to it, you, you've been missing it. It's like, how, I, how was I living for 18 years, dead and not aware of this to life? And it's becoming so apparent. And so it's greatly enriching. And so this thing that it's hard to tell somebody that they don't have that experience, but it's a very almost different uh, um, experience of being human. That being said, the, the, the view you said of more like the evil spirits and still this paradigm of, I would share, uh, of duality, that there's good and evil you know, going back and forth. And I think that ultimately stems from the schism of fear. And you can, if you have a lot of fear still in your system, it takes a long time to work fear out of your being. It, it's born in our system through lots of generations and requires a lot of letting go. If you start seeing these synchronicities and i think fear distorts our perception um and so it skews things and so we, we can see these signs and misinterpret them you know and i was recently talking to a client that because of some big spiritual experiences he went through a lot of synchronicity then moves into paranoia resembling more like schizophrenia well, oh my god everything's talking to me but now people are chasing me right so you're reviewing the whole concept but from fear the key is largely letting go of fear. And for me, it's a deep grounded in this oneness. It's a far more of that non-dual approach that there's nobody, for the most part, that's trying to hurt you. You know, there's, there's human beings that are living within themselves of a fractured reality that you try to hurt others and so on. I'm not saying the world's safe all the time, but the ground of being is a unity. Um, and so for me, that deep, it has a deeper trust. And that's why I've seen many, you'd say demons, really dark material in the journeys. And yet there's a deeper trust that even behind them and the depths of their psyche is God. And as long as I stay grounded in that, all that disappears and becomes just a facade. Um, and a lot of entities arise in these states. And if they have more awareness, they're more aware of this realization of oneness. Any being that comes and has more awareness than we do probably realizes that we all stem from the same source. And so that's ease my being in even with all the strong, mysterious, you know, it's quote unquote, looking evil beings, they all take the form as teachers trying to teach you something and give you strength and uh, never steered me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah. yeah, you wrote a couple of things there, which, which mesh with my experience. One is moving from a sort of dualistic worldview into a more non-dual one where, you know, I had a, mm -hmm. a Christian upbringing where you had good and evil, uh, the devil and God. And as time went on and, you know, psychedelics were one of the things that kind of pushed me out of that was, um, yeah. you know, I, I don't live in that world anymore. Um, mm -hmm. and, but, the, it, but not to say that it, it, it's gone. Uh, it, like what you're saying is I, mm -hmm. I've, I've integrated uh, you know, we've kind of talked about two mm. worldviews there. We've got the kind of the uh, the animist worldview and then the sort of dualistic religious worldview, uh, sort of more traditionalist mm -hmm. one. And I feel like I've kind of 
um, in, over the years integrated those inside myself. And the thing that helped me do that was mm. coming across the work of Ken Wilber, integral theory and all of that stuff. And it might be, so, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, but it, there's lots of ways to integrate this thing. But I think the key, the key thing, the key term is to integrate these things, assimilate them back into you because our culture doesn't train you how to do that. And you need to find a way to do that mm -hmm. because it's not, mm -hmm. you don't want to like uh, say, oh, I can't do that. I've got to push it away. It's too painful. Mm -hmm. I can't handle it. That's not an option. Uh, for, you know, that unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sorry to say that no matter how much you'd like to not live with those things, they're not going anywhere. And you need to, the mm -hmm. only way is to integrate mm -hmm. them into yourself and become, mm -hmm. um, say, like, you know, um, master of your own house, so to speak, or, or the kind of the gracious mm -hmm. host or um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, that's I, I, I like what you said there. And it's it's a massive topic. I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself, but you know, we, we just, just mm. touched on that. But I think for people listening oh. to this, um, mm. seek some, seek some guidance on how to integrate these things into you because you're, you're more than those things. They're part of you, but there's so much mm -hmm. more to you, um, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so mm. what else have I got here? So this, this is something people say quite a lot. People that have not taken psychedelics before or they haven't taken mm -hmm. large doses or they haven't taken them very often is psychedelics are cheating and they're the easy path. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. it, it, nobody, nobody who's had a large dose of psilocybin, ayahuasca, DMT, San Pedro, any of these substances would ever come out of it and say, oh, that was easy, um, you know it's wow. it's like it's almost like cheating <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah. you know have you encountered that uh from people i mean you know how do you feel about that <laughs> i've definitely heard that a lot over the years from from people you know let's just first first of all, yeah start with what you just shared there's nothing easy i'd say the hardest experiences of my life have been on psychedelics and and the greatest you know and, and definitely it plays the polls you're jumping right into whatever is there like the realness of it all whether it's an emotion or archetypal existence or the depth of your being and it's your you're forced to face everything and surrender control to whatever wants to emerge so it's it's absolutely difficult and painful and terrifying at times and so rewarding, so rewarding. And so you show up again, if you do a proper good psychedelic experience and dose, you don't wanna do it for a while. You're like, I am set for, for quite some time to have the courage, the strength, the resources to go into something like that. So yeah, I think it, many times it requires almost a warrior mentality to go into. So, and, and time begins to stretch. Those six hours can feel, I've been in states literally it's eternity where I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm before the big bang. Like the whole thing hasn't even started yet and you're in this timeless space and it feels like forever um so even time gets distorted and elongated and sort of begins to move so just to talk about how rough they are but something i began to realize of especially i think a lot of people that were more in traditional spiritual approaches you know meditation being one of the i think greater techniques of spiritual development 
and they talk, look at it as a shortcut or cheating and so on. What I saw, it's still embedded in this paradigm of autonomy that you have to do everything yourself and everything that you're using somebody else or anything else for is cheating. And it's really, I think, losing connection with our ground of being specifically of nature, of just nature didn't fuck up. Like it's created, you know, 200 different species of psilocybin mushrooms around the planet. It's created at least two dozen, 2,000 plants have DMT. It's, it's flooded almost every environment and ecosystem with these compounds that catalyze spiritual experiences that have been there our entire human history that predates humanity by millions of years. You know, our best estimates, psilocybin evolved about 65 million years ago, right? So it's been there far beyond us. And we use plants um, to make our bodies, ultimately, they turn sunlight into biomass to create our bodies directly and indirectly. It gives us our oxygen. Why not also, you know, it grow our brain and give us these spiritual experiences. And so I think it's, it creates a, needs a state of humbleness that like we can't do this alone. You know, if we're coming from an integral approach, you know, looking at the quadrants, that there's a correlation between our physical reality and our inner experience of consciousness. And then specifically looking at the brain, if I add a chemical compound to your brain, you're going to have a consciousness experience that you wouldn't have otherwise without that compound, right? So you ketamine for use for example because it's, it's very different than the trip that means like psilocybin you I give you ketamine you're going to have an experience that you'll never reach in in, in meditation it, it's a completely different kind of experience um you know same with like you give you mescaline all the meditation in the world is not going to give you a mescaline experience that being said there are compounds indigenous to our brain that like dmt that some of the trip to means like dmt itself will mimic and psilocybin has dmt inside of it you know, I went through a period where I was meditating at first uh, an hour, two hour, three hours a day, consistently and really doing a deep dive and focus. And after a hundred days of this, you know, having that deep state experience first of deep fear of like, oh my God, I'm going to die. I lose myself and staying within. So when dissolving the, the pew, like I'm God embodied and breaking through and beaming and confidence and timelessness. And the first thought arose was I've experienced this on psilocybin. But this just took me hundreds of hours. Maybe my prior psilocybin experiences had made my ego less rigid that it only took me hundreds of hours. Um, and meditation has its own beautiful focus. It creates discipline. It's everyday thing that gets clear your mind. But if we're looking for the state experiences that I think are really a great resource that really speed our entire process by giving us glimpses that these things are possible, psychedelics are absolutely beautiful and so i think there's no shortcut it accelerates our process but i think it requires humbleness to know that we can't do anything alone we're not meant to we need each other we need people to develop well we need community love affection warmth touch we need the plants um and that we're part of this larger interconnected ecosystem and know that we've always needed something beyond ourselves and that as Terrence McKenna say, we can't do it alone. And it's beautiful to be humble to that. Yeah. Well, I, um, I've been meditating for, uh, you know, 25 years or so as well. And I think, I mean, I, it took me 
I, it, about 10 years of really boring practice to get to a place where I started to consistently have mystical experiences in meditation. And I really feel like psychedelics helped me get through that period by actually delivering some mystical experiences while I was waiting for them to happen in my meditation practice, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like yeah. state experiences are really important. And, and I think also having been so well versed in different states of consciousness through the different psychedelics that helped me shift my consciousness in meditation practice to, you know, I kind of was recognizing the perfume of some of these states, if you know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. But I'd say the aim of my meditation practices is, is well, I mean, that's a whole, that's a, there's a, there's a whole wormhole down there. I'm, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to open that <laughs> up, but um, I mean, I, I'm personally, I'm a proponent of, of both, uh, both practices. Yeah. Um, talking of McKenna's, I mean, this, so this is something I wanted to talk about was the difference between knowledge questions and wisdom questions. And I, and I really, so a knowledge question is like, um, how long is that pencil? It's got a simple question, simple answer wisdom questions are much more mm -hmm. amorphous and they kind of come from the imaginal world and realm and um mm -hmm. so i think i think something that kind of shifted a lot for me over the years was was dropping trying to get knowledge from these experiences mm -hmm. but wisdom was what i was more interested in and talking of mckenna's mm -hmm. De dennis mckenna uh terence's brother um, he's done a, mm -hmm. uh, a roughly 500 ayahuasca ceremonies or, or journeys. Mm -hmm. And he said, it, after all of that, he doesn't know a damn thing about anything. <laughs> 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 but that's um, not to say he's not wise. So, you know, he's a very, very wise elder in the psychedelics community. And, you know, mm -hmm. he has, you know, he has cooked. Um, he's a kind of, uh, a well-matured whiskey uh, in, in that sense. He's, oh. he, he's, he's, a, he's a wise guy. But, you know, what he said after all of these hundreds of, of experiences is that in terms of knowledge, he doesn't really know anything. Um, and that's not mm. the point of why has he gone back hundreds of times. And, mm. he, you know, he's a knowledgeable guy. He's a scientist. Um, you know, so mm -hmm. he's not talking about that. Um, so, you know, for me, I think, that that's quite a big theme and, and something to kind of keep in the back of your mind when, when doing these things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Something that I came to, I mean, I was obsessed with learning, you know, went to first school as a neuroscience major, then mathematics and physics for three years and majored in philosophy, minored in, in psychology and, and uh, physics got my master's in conscious transformation and the doctors in philosophy, cosmology, consciousness. And so learning became my primary focus. And that was partly propelled because of mushrooms uh, at this, when I was 18, when I had this huge experience, I'd say connection with God, because it involves a voice and being led. It's a love's the most important thing in life by far. Miles after that is learning. And everything is so insignificant to these things. If you, as long as you have these two priorities in that order, you don't have to worry about anything else. And so, you know, first and foremost is love. And I think that's where wisdom normally is. All wisdom, I think, is deeply tied with love. 
that aside, when that's not available or at the forefront, I focus on learning. And so I became obsessed. You know, my mind was a drill seven hours a day, all day, every day, trying to learn more, I think, in, in every way, where it's just all these workshops or schools or reading or a conversation. What I found in my mind was definitely this pull learning towards more int intimacy with the cosmos, you know? So if you have a deep relationship with a partner and you're getting to know them, you wanna know everything about them because the more you learn about, the more you see, the more closer you feel. And it's almost the same thing is happening with the universe. The more and more and more you learn with the cosmos, the closer, more intimate you feel about it. So this idea of communion or co-union and learning, I think at, the, at a deep level we're together. And it finally finished you know, for me is, is I've learned more and more and more. The pool was towards a greater state of oneness, you know, of our deep interconnection of, of God and connection. It's just like that's, I think, you know, if you learn physics and the structure of the cosmos, the more you can feel it from the inside and out. You know, the more you learn about your human body, the more intimately you are connected with it. And so I think these two pools, you know, of, of knowledge, you know, being integrated eventually turns towards towards wisdom by itself once it's in there yeah. yeah and i said this is not to say that knowledge is is a is a bad thing or we shouldn't strive for yeah, it but i think yeah. you know some people i've noticed i mean it's been a long time since i've, I've you know been doing this stuff with other people um but you know mm -hmm. if i remember back I remember, you know, noticing it in myself and also seeing in other people wanting to understand sort of, you know, specific details mm. about the structure of, uh, you know, they come out, they tend to come out with very, very Baroque, Baroque uh, metaphysics, you know, um, mm -hmm. that yeah. really, you can tell it's just a conceptual framework that they've come out with. And it's not, as you say, a you know, love is the sort of all-encompassing uh, universal solvent for all of this stuff. But I think, I think so. you know, if you, I, I mean, I would say if you feel yourself coming out with some very compli complicated metaphysical system, you've, you've basically come out with a bunch of concepts which are mm. not really worth, you've kind of traded the real gold for a false gold, in, you know, in a way. Mm. Uh, um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you quite a, it's quite a big thing in the psychedelic scene. You know, people start mm -hmm. they start talking, and all this kind of complicated stuff comes out about you know mm -hmm. different angels and levels of this and this <laughs> you know this planet and that and it and it's like well, in a way, I I, I mean this might be my own bias, and I'm perfectly happy to own that. Um, but uh, I feel like it's kind of missing the point. Um, but I, I know if people okay. would be listening to that and thinking, God, what a complete asshole. <laughs> but, never mind. No, no, but I think if they're coming out feeling more disconnected and separate from our world, yourself, other humans, you're missing the point. You know, if you're coming to some metaphysics and it's all abstract and one, it's you're moving away from your body and immediate experience, and all of a sudden you feel alienated, or other people's are aliens from because your worldview is so different, and you're no longer having this felt heart connection. You are missing the point. So all these models and constructs, if they pull us away from material and deeper relationships, whether it's nature, ourselves, our family, whatever, I, I think it's a, a taking a step backwards for sure. Yeah. So um, I mean, I've made so many notes, but there's there's just a couple of points you know given the time that you've got 
I'd love to just t uh, no, touch going. into. So one is, um, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the, the fact that psilocybin is very, very, very low level of toxicity. You know, one of the things people yeah. kind of worry is like, oh, you know, you're kind of destroying your body and that kind of thing. And, you know, what is actually coming to light more and more as people study uh, psilocybin as a substance more is that it actually does good things for your body and one of the things that you've you touched on is neurogenesis and could you just yes. unpack that a little bit for people listening you know it how like first of all what is neurogenesis and and how does it happen yeah. with psilocybin yeah you know the neurobiology is just unbelievable it, it, it's incredible you know scientists really didn't really know neurogenesis meaning that the brain can continue to grow by taking the substance until like the 1990s you know so it's still not in the paradigm of most humans um that's something just so profound it's really possible by something even especially so simple and we have this you know the stigma that drugs are bad and they corrupt you know, all these things that, and they, they're placed within that. And so we have definitely have to separate that there's so many different kinds of drugs and substances. And specifically with this class, we'll look at the tryptamines that connect to the serotonin receptor sites, specifically here, psilocybin. So what we found out with starting, uh, you know, within the last 10 years of MRI studies, it hyperconnects the brain. And it does this by quieting what's known as a default mode network in the brain. And the default mode network lights up when you think of yourself, like I, 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 me, 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 like I want ice cream or I'm depressed, like self-absorbance or in fear. This network within your brain um, continues to light up and build. And it's um, overdeveloped in people with depression and anxiety. You know, it makes sense because if you're in pain, like depression, you can't help but keep thinking of yourself. You're self-absorbed. So this network gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so it's correlated, they call it almost like it's the ego network. It's the me, 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 me network. That part dissolves largely within psilocybin. And what they found is that this network acts as a repressive factor for the rest of the brain. Just like, you know, you would say in different spiritual traditions that the ego acts almost as a repressor for the rest of your psyche or yourself. And so as the ego quiets down, you're flooded with all this more information and say even deeper wisdom or archetypal content, or, you know, as young would probably even say even the collective unconscious that we're all part of. And so as this quiets down, the hype, the brain hyperconnects, correlated with a lot more creativity. A lot of these neuronal connections begin to form and stabilize. So a lot of these structures, not just connecting the moment, some of those structures begin to stay connected afterwards. And so it creates a new level of neuroplasticity. The brain gets to rearrange in a beautiful, and then and it, the practical approach that happens in life with insights and so on in people's lives and patterns change. But with the neurogenesis, you know, the growth of the new neurons, it also stimulates what's known as spinogenesis on the re-enlivening of dead rights. And so one way depression also looks like in the brain is parts of the brain are no longer connecting and talking to each other. I believe this correlates to I think a root part of the experience of depression, which is isolation. So for me, what I've seen with working with a lot of clients, depression is this feeling of I'm disconnected. I'm not enough. I don't like myself. And there's, there's a disconnection between you and the rest of the living larger systems we're a part of. But the brain is also becoming disconnected with parts of itself. And a lot of the dendrites, the, the parts of the neuron that connect to others, have atrophy. Psilocybin re-enlivens those connections and they come back to life. You know, fundamentally healing a lot of the depression, creating a more wholeness in our brain, in our psyche, and within our relationships. 
Um, just so it's absolutely phenomenal. Walks into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, as I mentioned, with more affinity than serotonin itself. It's one of the safest compounds on the planet. You know, more, far more than any other psychoactive substances, but far more than aspirin, for example. Um, theoretically, you could take, it's theoretical, a thousand doses, right? I mean, you, you need a bag of mushrooms and your body is fine. The limits more come with, you know, psychological and emotional limits, meaning how much can I tolerate? You know, if you take too much, you probably just pass out because it's just so overwhelming. So and even though you can take quite a lot, we play with a few grams, you know, Terrence McKenna is noted with calling just five grams, which is like a small handful of mushrooms is a heroic dose. So we're still playing on the lower level of these things. And most people, you know, take an, uh, half an eighth of a gram, which is very small or an eighth. And so there's a lot of limits we could do. And so it's just one thing to really bring into our system that this is really safe. Um, you know, as Paul Stamets, a mycologist, you know, notes uh, with, with microdosing, even just taking a little bit every day, can also still stimulate this, this, this growth, you know, happening in their brain and helps people, a lot of people get off of antidepressants, for example, and bring more joy into their lives. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. And you know, talking to Paul Stamets, you, you, I was listening to you talking uh, in a podcast episode and you mentioned this amazing film, uh, Fantastic Fungi um, on yeah. Netflix. And I would so recommend people watch that. Thank you for turning me on to that. It's a brilliant film. And um, yeah, Paul Stamets, okay. what a guy. I mean, the, the work he's done is yeah. absolutely incredible. Um, totally. So, so yeah, that's great. Growing your brain. I love it. it, it it's so, yes. yeah. it's so the opposite of what the kind of, uh, you know, old more conservative people that have got no understanding of these substances they think that they, they, one of the classic phrases is you're rotting your brain you know and that's that's that the opposite is actually happening here uh, totally. so, so good good to hear and so the last thing yeah. i wanted to touch on was that you you talked about this stoned ape theory and that mm. um you know something that terence and dennis mckenna started talking about um a long time ago um and the you know the basic premise is that in the encounter with psilocybin mushrooms is what turbo boosted the evolution of humans and that's why when we look at ourselves the things we are doing are so different to the uh, the other animals that live on this planet um and they're, they're kind of there's their answer, the, De Dennis and Terence McKenna's, their answer was that difference is the result of the encounter with psilocybin mushrooms. I mean, you, you could probably broaden it out to psychedelics in general. I mean, I don't know particularly why they honed it down onto that one. I, I think it was because it was coming, the, the apes were coming across it more likely because of the environment they lived right. in. You, know, you don't have ayahuasca growing in the savannah. Um, but, you know, could right. you just sort of elaborate on the theory? Because it, it, it is, you know, it's, it's a mm -hmm. hypothesis, so we don't know uh, mm. this for sure, but it's a really interesting mm. one. And I think when you, one's mm. had experience with these substances, it, it makes sense um, because you can feel how totally. much it changes right. you as a person. Absolutely. 
you know, the, so the brothers Terrence and McKenna were the first to propose uh, this idea. And uh, the logic being, um, you know, Terrence has said that, well, we know these substances expand consciousness and consciousness expanded, you know, in our evolutionary history. So was there something in the environment that created this expansion? Which for me is, you know, using Occam's razor is the most fundamental, rational explanation for the expansion of our consciousness. There might have been something in the environment that did it. You know, it's just just looking through towards our diet and science. And, and as you shared, we chose psilocybin mushrooms because as uh, Paul Samet himself notes, it, it's the most common mushroom in the African savannas where we evolved. Um, it, psilocybin mushrooms grow on every continent but Antarctica, you know, so they're, they're plentiful um, and easily available in, in so many places. So they would have been there where we evolved in Africa and then continued to, continue to migrate. Uh, the idea being that our primate ancestors, you know, we lived and evolved at the canopies and trees throughout 50 million years, weather patterns began to change, forcing our ancestors down to the ground. Um, and as Paul Stamets himself knows, there's at least 19 different primates that are known to eat mushrooms. Some of them come down from the canopies and trees to eat mushrooms. So if we didn't already eat mushrooms by the time we came down the ground, we eventually would have ate them as we began to follow uh, herds of cattle. You know, mushrooms are coprophilic, dung loving, because we're following cattle all the time and eventually um, herding and living with them. The mushrooms would have been constantly, you know, in, in the cattle footsteps. The oldest archaeological evidence we have of mushroom use is going back in 9000 BC um, of cave paintings of mushrooms in, in Africa, I believe in Algeria, right? So, so there's a lot of things that kind of point to, to this. The idea being that at first we took small amounts, then larger and eventually developed rituals. The idea that this happened, you know, as Paul Samets himself says, millions of times over millions of years. And we can look at scientific studies now of how profound these experiences are in one person's life. You know, 67% of the time have a mystical experience. Um, lives change radically, you know, uh, there's more creativity, um, empathy, and so on. The same was probably true for our ancestors. And the idea of if this happened for generations and generations and generations, it would have had a huge impact in culture. You know, as McKenna notes, likely itself, it was a catalyst for language. You know, mushrooms and psychedelics have this experience of synesthesia where the senses are conflated. So all of a sudden smells become colors, you know, or um, ideas become feelings. And so the idea that within our consciousness, because we're this unity, there was this meshing where symbols and, and thoughts emerged with sound and we created language with radically developing change our culture. And so it, it would have created a more cohesive also tribal system, a greater sense of empathy and oneness. So the species that we came from if they use the mushrooms, would have had greater survival advantages. Um, I'm forgetting this, the, I think it's wrong. Something was a psychologist in the 70s gave small amounts of psilocybin to different test subjects and found what was increased was visual acuity, greater edge detection. Objects appear more 3D and more well-defined. So it would have given our ancestors uh, greater survival tactics of noticing, say, snakes in the ground or noticing different kinds of fruits and leaves, right? So it would have enhanced our senses with larger, likely smaller, higher doses on um, their sexual arousal, increasing our desire for copulation. So we've been breeding more and a little bit more doses, more creativity and eventually spiritual experiences. So it would have had a profound impact on, on our culture. Um, and then looking all the way back to the oldest religious scripture, the Rig Vedas, you know, the beginning of Hinduism, 
think they have like 200 lines talking about soma, which is uh, a plant or fungus that allows them to connect to the gods. And so this went on for a very long time and largely fell away at the beginning of the agricultural revolution where we figured out that seeds turn into plants and trees. Mushrooms grow from spores, you know, so it, they're very elusive. And we didn't know until the 1970s and then the 80s uh, because of Terrence and Dennis McKenna how to grow psilocybin mushrooms. They, they published the first psilocybin mushroom growers guide. So, you know, as it's been in the book, just really breaking down the logic of how and why, um, I think it's our greatest framework. And so it's proposed as a hypothesis. And I talked to, you know, going up and asked uh, Paul Stamets, you know, at a festival a few years ago, what does it need to be uh, uh, a theory? And he's like, well, we need some more correlation. This correlates with creativity. And those tests have been done, especially with LSD and, and now with psilocybin. And so he shared at Burning Man, uh, at the, the MAPS talks in 2019, he says, I think we have now enough evidence put together that this can be a full-fledged theory. You know, So I think the framework is there to really begin to take this very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It is. It is fascinating, and I think, like you say, that it's uh, creativity is is the heart of the experience, and creativity is the heart of cultural evolution, and it's you know that's it's the engine of it all, and it's that kind of creativity going into hyperdrive that that, that you know happened, and it and it just it just exploded at a certain point, you know. But I mean one. One All thing right. that did, did come to mind for me was that there are other animals that eat psychedelic plants mm -hmm. uh, and fungi, um, mm -hmm. and they have the they have the experiences. But um, you know, has, has that been addressed? You know, why why? So let's say reindeer eat fly agaric mushrooms, mm -hmm. and I know I know fly mm -hmm. agaric mushrooms are very different experience to the psilocybin ones, but mm -hmm. just as an example. Yeah. You know what? Why aren't reindeer driving around in cars and singing opera? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, so, just to elaborate on uh, the relationship between psychoactives and, and animals, Giorgio Saramani, and he's an Italian ethnobotanist, wrote this book called Animals and Psychedelics. Definitely looking at all the, the ways animals interact with psychedelics. And there's even a larger book, is Ronald K. Seal, who's a UCLA psychopharmacologist and professor died there, and I think died a couple of years ago. But he wrote this book, Intoxication, based on 20 years of work there. And he saw that about 92% of the animal kingdom uses psychoactive substances. It's so widespread in nature that he calls it the fourth drive of evolution. So after, like, say, sleep and sex and water and food, given the opportunity, uh, an animal will change its consciousness chemically. And we've been missing this point because we're normally around domesticated animals. But a lot of them say cat with catnips and logs are known to go eat mushrooms that it's available. There's a drive within this. I think it's a transcendental drive to shift our consciousness. Um, Giorgio Saramani says for one reason, perhaps it's deconditioning agents. It enables new patterns of behavior. You know, like you're saying, something creative that you can arrange. And so it has quite evolutionary advantages. So we've missed the point that this is a big part of our nature to change our consciousness. And, and, and it's, it's a part of the larger embedded evolutionary system we're part of. And then to the question of why have other animals not evolved to the same with us? One answer is they have a very different evolutionary trajectory. So a reindeer, as much mushroom as it's eat, it's not going to turn into a human. I think the physiology of the animal has quite an impact, right? So it can eat all the mushrooms it wants, but it's not going to be a tool building animal. It has hooves. 
right? Yeah. So there's just <laughs> fundamental structures where we're like, it, we have these opposable thumbs that like evolve because we're swinging on branches, right? So now I can move and pick up things with my hands and make things. Um, the ranger might give them, and I saw this once in a journey myself, that it's the mushroom says, I've been helping animals for a very long time, helping them make decisions, giving them courage and how to migrate, how to move and, and so on. So it probably has given and helped a lot of animals do different things. But we've been able to really shape our environment because of these hands, you know, where they're creating structures, houses or blueprints, you know, we've really redefined the, the, the terror, you know, of our planet. And another thing is our brains changed a lot uh, while we were primates, you know, whether because of taking psychedelics smallly or just more, we're mammals, you know, that's a big part of the evolutionary process. So we empathically connect with others uh, of, like us very deeply. And so hence the evolutionary language. So we had a certain kind of hardware that was predisposed to make more out of these psychedelic experiences, you know? So most other animals didn't have the neuro, their own physiology, but also this biological system that can make the most out of yeah. the psilocybin. Yeah. Yeah. Those are those are pretty good, um, pretty good points actually. Yeah, it's such an enormous topic because it's been something I've been interested in for so long. Uh, maybe we'll do a part two one mm -hmm. day. But um, I love you, that you've been very generous with your time and. Um, oh, and, and it's fascinating. And um, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. And um, so just for, for people listening, um, could mm -hmm. you just say again, well, I mean, it, it, yeah, do you have a website that people can? Yes, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's psychedelicevolution.org. So psychedelicevolution, all the same, dot org. Yeah. And the, the, the book seems the Psilocybin Connection it's it's all available for pre-order uh right now and it's complete it's my dissertation you know it just took a long process to work with the publishers to get it out uh but it'll be shipped to you in about a little less than four months <laughs> great well that that's it um, you know what a what a wonderful service to humanity to to kind of you know put that treatise out into so, all the research you've I done am so I'm so honored to feel like the best thing I could do <laughs> the way like my being was moved to show up. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Johan. So it's been an absolute pleasure. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cruz.